Welcome back to Clinician's Brief, the podcast, the conversations behind the content. I'm your host, registered veterinary technician, Becky Mosser, and I'm very excited, as always, for today's conversation. It's one that we deal with on a regular basis in the veterinary clinics all across the nation, something we all have in common in our clinics. So we are very excited for today's guest to talk with us about the top five keys to successful management of otitis externa. You can find it in the June 2019 edition of Clinician's Brief. Dr. Aaron Offox, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. We're very excited to have you. And, you know, when we started this conversation, I thought I was talking to you out there at the University of Tennessee, but I found out differently. Yes, I just finished my residency in dermatology and have started at MedVet Chicago. That's a big change. Congratulations. Thank you. It's very exciting. And you also mentioned you guys are, are currently in the middle of moving. Yes, so they are in the process of opening a brand new facility with basically every service you can think of under one roof, and it's just a mile from where we were before, and so that's very exciting as well. Brand new shiny job, brand new shiny building with brand new shiny everything. That will be very fun. Let's back things up a little bit from today. You tell us a little bit about kind of where you came from and where you went to school and how you ended up where you are today as far as doing your residency in dermatology and ending up in Chicago. So I'm originally from Louisville, Kentucky and grew up riding horses and my mom is an Australian shepherd breeder in her spare time. So grew up around animals. So the natural progression of that was vet school. And so I went to Sweetbriar College in Virginia, which is an all-women's liberal arts school. Um, rode on the writing team all four years there, was pre-vet, and then graduated with a BS in biology, minor in chemistry, and then went straight to Auburn University for vet school. So War Eagle to any Auburn fans listening. And then did a small animal rotating internship at Cornell University at their vet school, and then went straight to the University of Tennessee to do my dermatology residency. I could almost hear the go war eagle. Like I could hear the war eagle across the nation as soon as you said it. You guys are always loud and proud, and I absolutely love it. And so it sounds like you were like, you know, the person who knew they always wanted to be a veterinarian growing up. That was just always going to be you. Yep. Since about sixth grade, when we had to do a project about that, that's when I decided. And, you know, I was open to something different, but went through undergrad and just decided that that was definitely what I wanted to do. So went straight through. I love it. And when, at what point did you decide dermatology was kind of your niche? So it was definitely a process for me that I was less clear about. And so I had done a lot of shadowing before vet school. And so I had shadowed at a specialty hospital with a lot of surgeons and also rode around with an ambulatory equine vet. So I was kind of interested in both of those things going into vet school, but quickly realized that surgery bored me when I was reading about it and terrified me when I was doing it realized that emergency medicine wasn't my passion either. So it was kind of a process of elimination. And I got into my fourth year of vet school in the clinic and did a couple dermatology rotations and just really fell in love with it. And so that's kind of where the passion started. Now, I do want to make sure that we give recognition to your co-author on this article, Dr. Elizabeth May. Uh, Tell us a little bit about Dr. Elizabeth. So she was one of my residency mentors and she is originally from Texas, also did her residency at the University of Tennessee and then went and was one of the head clinicians for dermatology at the University of Iowa 
for quite a while before coming back to the University of Tennessee to join the dermatology department as one of the faculty. And it must be, I mean, a, a kind of a huge honor to get to write an article with one of your mentors. Of course, yes. It was a great process. She's amazing and a great writer and editor. So I always learn a lot working with her. So this article that you guys wrote together, again, published in June 2019, Clinicians Brief, the top five keys to successful management of otitis externa. It talks about something we see just about every single day, I would I would say, in general practice. And, you know, while it is somewhat routine, I think it can be a struggle for clients and for veterinarians. We talk about the need for treatment and early identification in successful non-surgical outcomes, but Where does prevention come in? Are we doing a good job at talking to our clients about ear infections and otitis externa and keeping ears clean early on? So that's an interesting question. And I think, you know, it kind of depends on the dog and the situation. So I think what you're getting at is, do we need to start prevention when we see brand new puppies and things like that? And I don't think that every dog out there needs to have a prevention plan for its whole life as far as like ear flushing or something like that regularly. But I think, you know, it might be something that's important to talk to owners who own predisposed breeds. So Cocker Spaniels or Basset Hounds, those dogs may benefit from some routine flushing or at least having owners aware that that may become a problem so that if they do notice anything, they can come in sooner rather than later. But we do have lots of dogs out there that live their whole lives without any issues, even um, with the owners not spending a lot of time focusing on their ears. So I think it really depends on the breed. Also, if a animal does have a known allergy or other predisposing factor, those are other types of situations where veterinarians may want to spend more time educating clients about that um, and letting them know what to look for, what they recommend as far as routine maintenance. Yeah, I think there's so much, you know, there's so much to talk about. It's hard to remember. And and putting that in the forefront of the mind in, I guess, those high-risk breeds is important. And one thing I found interesting in your article as well is you talk about palpation of the ears and determining if medical management or surgical management will likely be the more effective way. Can you talk a little bit about what exactly that palpation includes and, and the indicators that you're looking for? Yes, of course. So one of the first things I do when I'm doing an otic exam is to externally palpate the ear canal. And so that can be felt by gently grasping around the vertical ear canal at the base of the ear where it attaches to the skull. And so a normal ear is very pliable and easily compressed, but with otitis dogs, as otitis progresses and becomes more chronic, the canal undergoes many changes. And so you can have epidermal hyperplasia, You can have differences in the glandular secretions that are happening, fibrosis of the canal, mineralization, and in severe cases, even ossification. So as those changes occur, the canal becomes less pliable and in end-stage cases is usually very firm or even rock-like in texture. And so if I'm palpating a canal and it feels like a rock, that is a dog that is likely not going to benefit from more medical management. And that's when a a total ear canal ablation is likely warranted. Oh, you know me. I don't know, my stomach just hurts thinking about those sweet babies because we've all seen them and we know that they've been suffering for such a a long time. And and, and we do kind of immediately go to dogs in our head here, but we want to remember that this information applies to cats as well, correct? What are are those major differences and those similarities that you're seeing? Yeah. So 
Obviously dogs and cats aren't exactly the same and one difference is that otitis is going to be less common in cats. So about 15 to 20% of dogs are quoted to be affected and 4 to 7% of cats. So it is a less common problem in cats. And another thing is that in dogs, allergy is often a very common predisposing factor to causing otitis. In cats, it's a little bit more varied. And one of the common causes is going to be an inflammatory polyp or mass in the ear. And that's especially common to cause otitis media in cats where in dogs, it's commonly an extension of their otitis externa causing otitis media. Oh, and you know, I feel like with these guys, it's a little bit harder to get the early intervention. I don't know that our cat owners think about ear infections the same as dog owners. Do you, I mean, what is your experience there? I mean, by the time I see them, they, they typically do. And, um, you know, the cat scratching and maybe has a head tilt or, or something like that. But yeah, I, can't say by the time I see them, there's an appreciable difference because, you know, we're typically a a referral situation. So by the time we see them, most of them know there's a problem. A lot of times the most common thing I see is inflammatory polyps. So usually a polyp is either seen or suspected by the time I see them. And so they know what's going on. Also, you know, otherwise, you know, we'll see the occasional yeast infection, but they're just not as common. Yeah. So, so sorry, no. I don't have a great answer for that. <laughs> no, that's fair. That is a great answer, actually. It, it makes a lot of sense. The next thing I wanted to ask you about, and it's deviating slightly from the article in the conversation, but I have to ask it, especially from the veterinary technician standpoint, is ear cytology. Mm-hmm. Give me your secrets to the very best sample and tell me, should we heat fix it? Do we not heat fix it? What are we doing? Because I see so many different methodologies out there with very little science to back it up when I ask, why do you do it that way? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so unfortunately, I don't have any great secrets for you, but the basics would be when I'm taking ear cytology, I hold the pinna with one hand and I take my sample with a cotton tip applicator in the other. And so I raise up the pinna so that my swab will go down to the junction between the vertical and horizontal canals, which is where we typically sample from. It also protects the tympanic membrane from any potential damage. And then I just roll out a thin strip along the length of the slide and do each ear on one side of the slide. I personally do not typically heat fix. There are a couple papers in the literature that show that there's no significant difference in interpreting results between heat fixing and non-heat fixing. And so I typically don't. And then I just use a standard modified right stain and dip in each of the stains about 10 times and go from there. Perfect. I mean, I think that really truly does help because I just have always had heard so many different arguments on the best ways of handling. And while it seems somewhat simple, I think it really is important to say, what are the best techniques for getting the best samples? So, okay, back on track to your article. We talk about topical and oral steroid treatments prescribed to manage patients' discomfort in these stenotic ear canals. And I know There's times when we can feel concerned about treatment without identification of the current state of the tympanic membrane. And you talk about dogs and we know that some are so painful or, you know, are not puppies. We maybe want to put our our spicier clients, um, you know, that that don't want to have a a thorough ear examination at that time. Is going with a topical treatment a concern in patients that we haven't been able to identify the state of the tympanic membrane? Well, I think it depends on the situation and the treatment. A topical treatment is pretty much always going to be necessary in a case of otitis because 
our oral therapy is typically ineffective for otitis externa. And so I think we just have to do some client education if there is some resistance for that. And I think a full otic exam is always important and really shouldn't be an option if that's what the patient is presenting for. And hopefully that was something that came across in the article. But with that said, even with a full examination, we can't always evaluate the tympanic membrane fully, especially in cases of acute otitis because the canal is swollen or the ear is painful and the animal won't tolerate the procedure. And so for whatever reason, sometimes we can't see it. And in those cases, I will sometimes still use medication with an aminoglycoside in it if I don't highly suspect or know that there is a rupture of the tympanic membrane. The caveat to that being I always, always stress to owners that there is a potential, a quite low potential, but a potential nonetheless for ototoxicity in that case. Um, And even if the tympanic membrane is intact, I still warn owners about the potential of ototoxicity with aminoglycosides. And so I always just warn them about the risk and have them monitor for any changes in, in hearing. And if they're noted, to call me immediately because sometimes hearing loss is reversible if caught early and we flush out the medication. And so I think client education is the biggest thing there. However, if I do have a known rupture, highly suspect one, then I will avoid an aminoglycoside and use something else like a a fluoroquinolone, which is safer. And so that is typically how I approach it. Um, Something else I avoid basically in every year is chlorhexidine, especially at the higher concentrations, which have been shown to be ototoxic. Oh, and I think that, I mean, it is important for for everyone to feel a little bit more confident in making that decision. I think you're absolutely right. Talking to our clients um, and letting them know about your concerns, I think sometimes we, we don't feel confident in conveying those concerns in concern that our clients will lose confidence in us when we say, hey, this could potentially hurt your pet. But I think you're right. It's not always an ideal situation. Even in the most patient and wonderful, easily handleable clients, there may just be too much going on in the ear to get good visualization. So to that point, I guess, too, what are our options when we do have contraindicated use of, of steroids and outside of, you know, concerns for just that ear, you know, tympanic membrane in general, you know, what are some some areas where we might also want to avoid them? So unfortunately, there is no other product that is a perfect replacement for steroids as they are pretty invaluable for treating otitis. In my mind, the biggest contraindication to giving them is prior to endocrine testing, and that includes both thyroid testing and Cushing's testing as the steroids will interfere with your test results. But steroids may also be contraindicated in some patients with diseases like heart disease or diabetes, especially maybe an uncontrolled diabetic. Um, So one option that may be considered would be atopica, but it's gonna be much slower acting and may ultimately not be as effective, but that may be something to try. And then the ophthalmic tacrolimus is something that I used in dogs with contact reactions, and that can be really helpful, but may not be helpful for a dog with acute stenotic swollen painful otitis. And so ultimately in dogs where steroids are contraindicated long-term, especially if they have severe ear disease, uh, TICA or total ear canal ablation may be indicated. In kind of to that point, when we talk about diabetic patients or or those with those concerns for steroids, do we 
avoid topicals as well? Do we expect a systemic effect and, and how much so if we do? So we certainly expect there to be some systemic absorption. And as I mentioned before, we do see interference with our thyroid tests as well as our ACTH simulation tests. You do get some suppression. And so we know that we are causing some systemic effect, but it shouldn't be a huge one for short-term use. And so if we're dealing with a controlled diabetic, for instance, I wouldn't hesitate to use a short course of a topical ear medication, but there can be more concerns when we're using steroids more chronically, even when they're topical. And so that's something to keep in mind. Okay. All right. So perfect segue for you for my next question, because it is that chronic presentation that I want to ask you about. So you know, when we see them in the first time, we're kind of just treating the otitis externa for what it is. But then, you know, finding the actual cause and getting to the root of the cause, I think it can be important. And you talk about the importance of it in the article, but I, I think it can be frustrating. And I think there can be extensive diagnostics that have to sometimes happen or maybe more expensive than extensive, depending. And there's limitations. So when do we start to worry about finding the actual cause to the extent that we are doing these follow-up diagnostics is that the second presentation, third, fifth, tenth, where do we start worrying about what's causing this? Yeah, I think it depends a little bit on the specific case. So I'll generally give a pass the first time I see a dog unless it has other concurrent symptoms such as paritis or infection elsewhere. But if the otitis recurs despite instituting a good maintenance plan, such as twice weekly flushing, for instance, that's when I'll start working it up. And so I think it's important to note that identifying the underlying cause won't cure a current otitis. That's where our medications come in, but it will help prevent recurrent episodes. But the exception to all of this is gonna be if we have an animal come in for first otitis, but there's actually a mass or a polyp in the ear or a foreign body that's encountered or even suspected, then we have to address that right away because that otitis is not gonna resolve typically until that mass polyp or foreign body is removed. That makes a lot of sense. You have to think about how much worse is the underlying cause going to get, right? And I think the good thing about veterinary professionals is we have instincts and I think we listen to our instincts because we work with patients that don't talk to us, right? So I think there is some credit to saying this doesn't feel right. It's been too many presentations or this presentation is concerning. And I also like the idea of, you know, not getting hung up just that it is just in the ears. Are there other, you know, presentations happening from head to tail? And that can kind of give us the whole story. And I think it's important to remember and not to get so focused. We tend to do that. You know, when we talk about, you know, getting overly focused and, and I look back into your article, monitoring and maintenance were two areas you discussed as well. And it made me think about that being sort of important because I think about our approaches in general practice and to this condition and, and when it seems straightforward and we aren't worrying about an underlying cause and it just seems like a presentation straightforward, you know, we might prescribe some medication, some flush, explain how to clean out the ears, how long to do it. Maybe we schedule one follow-up appointment or there's a tech phone call later. But how much more should we be following up and monitoring in the future? Is this something we should be talking to them about? Is like, hey, you may have a predisposition here and I'd like to see you a couple times over the next year to make sure we're getting in front of any anything. So again, I think everything comes down to the specific patient and client. But Generally, when a maintenance plan has been established that's adequately able to prevent or at least greatly reduce the frequency of otitis recurrence, then frequent rechecks are typically not needed. But 
certainly an annual or biannual appointment is often helpful to keep that patient-client veterinarian relationship active and get eyes on the dog and make sure everything's going well, talking to the client, etc. And I think seeing the dog and doing cytology when the dog's asymptomatic can be confusing because low numbers of organisms can be normal. And so I think that's potentially something to avoid. But certainly owners should be counseled to seek care if they know any new or increasing clinical signs. Obviously, catching these things earlier rather than later is going to help as far as how quickly and easily we're able to resolve any problems and prevent new ones from occurring. So I think client education, again, here is is going to be the most important thing. All right. So asking in a safe place, okay, just veterinary professionals here, no judgment. What do we do with these clients who we know they have these reoccurring infections? It's this cocker spaniel who gets these infections four times a year and mom calls and just wants that medication refilled. And it has been maybe three or four months since we've seen the dog. And like, yes, we know it keeps happening, but yes, that client patient relationship is still there. Yes, we know this keeps happening. Can can we feel comfortable in just sort of getting these guys through this in dogs that we know? Are, are there dogs that are just going to have otitis externa pop up? It doesn't have a major underlying cause. It's, it's sort of just like an atopic dermatitis in the ear type situation. And we can throw medication at it. Or do we really need these guys to come in every time? So that's a complicated question. Um, and... You know, obviously the proper answer is they have to come in every time. The reason that is, is because things change. And so if I haven't seen an animal in four months, you know, are we dealing with the same thing or are we dealing with something different? And so because of that, we really want to encourage them to come in. Now, if it's something that's a more frequent problem or you know, we just really haven't been able to adequately control this animal because maybe they are atopic and their only symptom is their ear infection. They don't have any other issues. And so we've done the workup. This is what we have. What I will do for some animals is send them home with a mild steroid to use intermittently or even uh, a combination product like something with clotrimazole, genomycin, and betamethasone again, intermittently in these dogs where they just need a little extra help to prevent an infection. But if I do have a full infection recurrence, then I would like to see them and reevaluate them, assess their ear canal with otoscopy, do cytology and make sure nothing has changed. So thank you for that and letting me get off track there with you because I think it is a space, again, where sometimes as practitioners or veterinary professionals, you're like, oh, what do I do here? Like, it doesn't feel right, but this is what the client wants and this is what's easy and and this is why I need to have somebody, I need to go to sentence in the back of the head, my head that tells me this is why I know the right thing is to have you come in. So thanks a lot for kind of letting me take you off track into the, into that dangerous little territory to toe the line, I know. And, and it really, truly, I think is helpful for practitioners out there. Plum's Veterinary Drugs is the must-have veterinary drug resource. With Plum's Veterinary Drugs, your number one source for drug information can always be right at your fingertips, on your phone, your tablet, or your desktop, wherever you need it. To learn more and subscribe, visit plumsveterinarydrugs.com.
All right, and for my favorite Keep It Brief segment, although as usual, no pressure at all because we rarely keep it brief, there are a ton of ear products out there on the market, and you discuss a few features of effective treatments. Um, How do you coach veterinarians and veterinary inventory managers to approach stocking ear cleaners and treatments? Yeah, so I think it can be a bit overwhelming, but I think you have to first think about what sort of products you need. And so for flushes, for instance, I think it's important to have a ceruminolytic flush for clients to use at home. And then we may want a slightly more potent or powerful one to use in the hospital. Those tend to be more greasy though, and so they have to typically be flushed out with water. And so that's why we reserve those for in-hospital use. And that would be something that includes like squalene, for instance. And I also like to keep something on hand with a mild steroid in it. Again, for those dogs who may be atopic, for instance, and get inflamed ears, maybe preceding an actual bout of otitis. So to help prevent that before it really ramps up. And then lastly would be a flush with Triz EDTA in it, which is going to be important for dogs with Pseudomonas specifically. And then as far as medications to actually treat otitis, typically we're dealing with polypharmacy products. So those are the ones that have a steroid in it, uh, antibiotic in it, as well as an antifungal. And I think for most cases, you can keep things pretty simple. So I think keeping something on hand that has genomycin as a base, for instance, as well as one with a fluoroquinolone as a base, again, in those dogs where you suspect there may be a tympanic membrane rupture or we're dealing with pseudomonas. And so I think those are going to be kind of our mainstays in most situations. As we have more complicated cases, cases of pseudomonas that won't resolve with the fluoroquinolone or maybe an MRSP that's not responding appropriately, then we may need something else. But that might be where compounding comes in or you can send Um, an owner maybe to an online pharmacy if you want to keep what you keep in stock to a minimum. That's a great point, right? Like utilize the resources that are out there instead of trying to, you know, one, have all that money sitting on the shelf when these products are are ever-changing and evolving and and it can be really overwhelming. And I really appreciate you kind of clearing that up and helping people understand that baseline, you know, this is what you need to have. uh, Find the one that you like and you don't have to have a thousand products sitting around. And I really appreciate you taking the time to explain all of this to us today because, again, in something we see so often there, I think there are times we question what we're doing and how we're doing it and if we're doing it right. And just sort of knowing the space that we are working in and and taking these sort of everyday things to be really somewhat important. What are the other resources, other places, any other resources or or websites you would send our listeners to for more information? So for some of the latest research, the Veterinary Dermatology Journal is going to be the place to go. For more Clinically based stuff, obviously, Clinician's Brief is a great resource, but there are also some great review articles that can be accessed online that really go through in detail the mechanics and treatment of otitis. God bless the internet, right? You can get whatever you need right right at the tip of your fingers. And I think you're exactly right. Sometimes it's just about staying up to date, reading the articles, because even otitis externa is still being researched, right? We're still finding out better treatments, better ways to deal with it, and even causes. Thank you again so much for taking the time to talk with us today about your article. Again, it's the top five keys to successful management of otitis externa in the June 2019 edition of Clinician's Brief. Dr. Aaron Offox, thank you so much for taking the 
time to be with us today. You're a wonderful guest and I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. It's been great to be here. Thanks again to today's guest for joining us and thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. While you're there, make sure you subscribe, rate, and review. We appreciate if you leave us all the stars. You can listen to podcasts as well on our website at cliniciansbrief.com backslash podcasts. You can find us at facebook.com backslash cliniciansbrief, on Twitter at cliniciansbrief, and on Instagram at clinicians.brief. You can also drop us a line at podcast at briefmedia.com. Clinicians Brief, the podcast is a brief media production produced by Alexis Ustry, sound by Randall Stupka, hosted by me, Becky Mosser, with special thanks to production assistant Michelle Moncrez.